Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you for being here. You're welcome, Kyle. Good to be back. And we always like to start with the Angelus. Do you have some intentions for our Angelus today? Yes, I think it would be important to pray as we did this past Sunday for persecuted Christians. And this is a week of special prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are who are suffering for the faith. This past Sunday, the Solemnity of Christ the King was a day of prayer for persecuted Christians, but also this whole week the church is praying for the, the persecuted church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, And she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode of Truth in Charity, Bishop Rhodes talks about his recent travels around the diocese, as well as the Feast of Christ the King, Advent, and then listener-submitted questions. To submit your question for a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and we've had a lot of things happening in the diocese lately. I want to kind of hit them uh, one at a time, but so first of all, you do an annual all children's mass all schools mass yes all schools mass yeah both in um south bend side and in the fort wayne side it's always great because all the it's for the catholic grade school children Uh so yeah in the month of october i did both of them and how many students come to those well i think it was quite a bit larger Uh, i think maybe 3,500 or so in South Bend. It was at Notre Dame and probably about 2,500 in Fort Wayne at the Coliseum. And the uh, fourth graders will dress up as saints for that? Oh, yeah. It's so cute. They're sitting in the front (laughs) and they're all kinds of saints. So that's kind of fun. I'll usually in the homily, when I have the all schools mass, I'll go down and talk to the kids about the saints that they're dressed up as. Yeah. You ask them questions? I do. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I usually have a point that I prepare for the homily, uh-huh. but then I try to adapt as I, I'll uh, engage the kids. Yeah. How many of the saints do you think you can recognize just by looking at them by some kind of 
you know, thing you know, that they were known for. Some, I mean, obviously, saints like Mother Teresa, you can tell the yeah. habit. But a lot of them are dressed like nuns, but I, it, you can't really right. tell which one it is or if they're dressed as priests or bishops or popes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I have to guess. Yeah. But then there are others like who wear a particular habit, like a Franciscan habit. And so I know it's probably either St. Francis or St. Anthony. Uh-huh. Some will dress. I remember there were a couple this year dressed as St. Maximilian Colby. So they had the Auschwitz oh, prison yeah. uniform. So I could tell. Sometimes they'll have someone dressed as a bishop with a shamrock. So I know, <laughs> right. I know it's St. Patrick. Or uh, So yeah, some I can recognize. Some it's more challenging. How important is a Catholic education these days? Oh, my goodness. I've said this a lot of times. I think Catholic schools are needed now more than ever. I think uh, given the culture in which we live, it's so important that our children are, are raised well in the faith. I really do think our Catholic schools are doing a great job, our high schools and our elementary schools, uh, so that really the faith pervades the classroom and all the activities of the school. So I really do encourage uh, parents to send their children to Catholic schools. And when you have the chance to address elementary school kids, much different than high school kids, what is some of the things that you like to talk about with them? Well, with elementary school students, I'll often just talk about some fundamentals of the faith, um, friendship with Jesus. I really talk a lot about that, of, of knowing how much God loves them, how much Jesus cares for them. And I'll try to help them to have a real personal relationship with the Lord by praying. I'll also talk to them about how God has a plan for all of them. Mm-hmm. So I'll, even at young age, I'll talk to them about discerning a vocation. And I'll talk to them about how God is calling them to be holy. Like you talk when we talk about them dressing up as saints, I always try to say, you know, God's calling you to be a saint. Yeah, and then I'll talk about well, how you know, and really, it's um, responding to God's grace in our lives. Um, so there's a lot of things. Sometimes with the children, I'll talk about the sacraments, the importance of the Holy Eucharist, confession, and then I'll talk about living their faith and practicing it through kindness and charity, and goodness. Earlier this month, you had the blessing of the Divine Mercy Funeral Home on November 2nd. What is significant about that funeral home? Well, it's the first Catholic funeral home in our diocese in the sense that it's um, operated and managed by a Catholic organization, which is the Catholic Cemetery Association. So it's a beautiful funeral home. I mean, there's beautiful religious art in it, a very nice structure. But even more importantly is the whole atmosphere is one of prayer and faith. In other words, the whole idea is this is a ministry, a ministry of consolation, Hmm. a ministry of comfort, and to really also help and encourage people to appreciate the funeral rites of the Catholic Church. So we celebrate, for example, in the funeral home, not only wake services, liturgies of the word. We also have the rosary. We'll have Catholic literature there for people. And then, of course, we strongly encourage people to have the funeral mass in the parish church. And the fact that it's right there on the grounds of Catholic Cemetery also is kind of a nice thing in that um, you have just 
the images of the of the faith all around and our hope in the resurrection mm -hmm. we don't allow anything obviously that would be contrary to the teachings of the church like you might find some currents today that want to uh, keep cremated remains ashes in the, in the home and things like that mm -hmm. no we talk about the respect for the remains and the and the the deceased body etc that it needs to be treated with the reverence and dignity and given a proper burial so we're also able have a Catholic funeral home to really encourage and help people to observe the norms of the church regarding funerals. Is one Catholic funeral home in the diocese enough, or would you like to see more of these? Well, I haven't had any uh, requests for others. Um, the Catholic Cemetery Association, it was, it's their project, and they're really here in Fort Wayne. We don't have a diocesan cemetery in South Bend area, okay. like we do in Fort Wayne. There is a Catholic cemetery at the University of Notre Dame, but that's really owned and operated by, by Notre Dame, I believe. Now, some parishes have their own cemeteries up throughout the diocese, but really the, the only truly diocesan cemetery is, is in Fort Wayne. Do you celebrate many funerals as bishop? Um, no, not many. Some. I mean, generally back home, if it's a family member, relative, or friend, it's not always easy, but sometimes I, I, I do. Mm -hmm. Here in the diocese, it would usually be funerals of priests or deacons, mm -hmm. occasionally the funeral of a layperson. Okay. Have you planned your funeral, or do you have ideas of things that you would like to see happen at your funeral? <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that. That's something that I need to work on. It's on my to-do list because huh. my uh, arrangements are all from years ago when I was in Harrisburg, so I do need to update them. And all the priests are expected to have their funeral arrangements completed, and, and they're kept in the vicar general's office. So huh. I, I've been meaning to get around to that. I still need to. Well, another thing that happened this month was the USCCB's Fall Assembly. How often do the bishops get together? Twice a year. We have uh, the main meeting is in, in November, and then we also meet again in the spring in June. Every three years, the meeting in June is more of a retreat format. Oh, okay. So I'd say really the November meeting has a lot more business. But it's great to get together with brother bishops. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, the agenda changes. It depends on what's happening. We have many committees of the USCCB. I've been involved in very, uh, in quite a few of them, where a lot of work is done. So we have meetings also apart from the general assembly. But when all the bishops come together, it's really a good experience of our collegiality, our brotherhood in the episcopacy. Yeah, how much of it is we need to respond to confusion in the church or questions that are coming up, and how much of it is logistics and other things like that? Yeah, I'd say a lot of it is is about um, the different uh, challenges that we face. We have a planning process, so there are certain priorities that we have. Hmm. We set five-year strategic plan. Now, sometimes things will arise that we may not have foreseen. But a lot of our priorities are, you know, priorities that have been in place for, for quite some time because they're ongoing challenges. We can talk, for example, uh, the importance of respect for life, 
uh, strengthening of marriage and family life, they have been priorities for quite a long time. So we have to we continue to work on those through programs, but also through statements or documents, etc. And then practical uh, things of implementing these teachings. Another area that's uh, been a priority for us is is the care of immigrants and refugees. Mm-hmm. So. Religious defense of our religious liberty is another major area that's been a focus for us. And there's many others as well, but those are some of the the chief issues that seem to come up at every meeting. Yeah. And we receive reports on how things are going. And if there's some some new developments, we'll we'll receive reports. And then we'll be we'll be able to discuss at the meeting our own experiences or ideas in dealing with these things. Oftentimes there's also uh, something with the, regarding the liturgy mm-hmm. on the on the schedule. Like this past meeting we discussed the um, the new English translation of the rite of baptism. Mm-hmm. You know, which has been in the works for quite some time. As you know, some years, a few years ago, we had the revised translation of the Roman Missal in English, and that mm-hmm. was approved, and we're using it. But we still have some more work to do with some of the other liturgical rites of the church. And as I mentioned, baptism is the most recent. And the rite of marriage recently was updated, right? That's correct. That was probably t- two years ago, maybe, that it was approved, and then it took a while till it was published. Oh, okay. Yeah. Are all bishops required to go to those meetings? Um, yes. I mean, we're, we're expected to go. Yeah. I don't know if the word required is appropriate because bishops, uh, but definitely expected to. And, and attendance, especially at the fall meeting, is, is, is very strong. Another thing I've been noticing is people being confirmed. I'll see pictures up on Facebook and stuff. So you're doing confirmation masses. Do you do those throughout the whole year? I do now. Well, mainly fall and spring because, um, you know, I don't have any help anymore, any other bishops helping. So I had to move probably about a dozen confirmations, maybe 15 to the fall Mm -hmm. because it's just physically it's impossible for me to do them all in the spring. Yeah. So I was happy with parishes that volunteered to have their confirmations in the, in the fall so that I could balance it out a little bit. But I love doing the confirmations. It's been a it's a beautiful part of my ministry. Does every parish have their own confirmation mass or do they No, the, um, the larger parishes, yes, but we often will group the smaller parishes together. Uh-huh. Again, it's just not possible to. <laughs> that would be all I would be doing. I wouldn't be able to do anything else as a bishop yeah. if I had uh, confirmations in all 80, 81 parishes or 82 parishes throughout the year. So we do we do group some. There's some that are so large, though, that I have to do two confirmations because the church isn't big enough. for. So, for example, uh, I do two confirmations for St. Vincent's in Elkhart and also for St. John's in Goshen. I used to do two confirmations a year at St. Pius and Granger, but they built this sure. new church, which is much larger, so I, I only have to do one there. Now, as bishop, you have the ability to empower a priest to do a confirmation. Is but you right? know what? I, I, as far as a group confirmation, I've never given that. Yeah. I could, but I, you know, the bishop is the ordinary minister of confirmation, so I take that very seriously. Mm-hmm. There might be an individual situation where, where I'd give the priest the faculty to confirm maybe one or two people, 
But uh, thanks be to God, I'm healthy enough and I can do uh, all the group confirmations myself. You mentioned what you talk about with elementary school kids. What do you like to hit on in your homilies for confirmation masses? You know, another similar theme is 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 the call to holiness. Uh-huh. But I'll often talk to them about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, encourage them to be open to these gifts as I explain what each of them means. But I would say in some ways, my confirmation homily is intended to kind of um, a little bit of a pep talk. In other words, to to really try to engage the young people with their faith, that they understand how God is calling them to bear witness, to bear witness to the gospel, to bear witness to Christ in their words and deeds. And they're empowered to do that by the Holy Spirit that they receive in confirmation. The young people respond to the message. What I hope to avoid is where they think that, okay, this is like graduation, that it's the end of their religious education or something once they're confirmed. No, that's the exact opposite. You know, confirmation is a sacrament of initiation. So I'll always emphasize that, that uh, it's just the beginning. Yeah. What do you remember from your confirmation? I remember it was a beautiful ceremony, and I, you know, I remember the bishop coming, and I was in seventh grade, mm-hmm. and we had, I had a beautiful Gothic home parish church, and uh, it was a big deal. I mean, I remember the the practices that we had with the singing, and it was it was really beautiful. I also remember in those days, you know, we were still using pretty much the Baltimore Catechism, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of memorization questions and answers uh-huh. and i remember it was a lot of work yeah and we were a little afraid at that time you know because we knew the bishop could be calling on us <laughs> so there was a certain element of you know one of the gifts of the holy spirit is fear of the lord i think we had some fear of the bishop yeah <laughs> um and uh so i remember that it, it was pretty intense preparation back in those days yeah well coming up i want to talk to you a little bit about the Christ the King that we just celebrated, as well as Christians and the persecution that's happening. Uh, and then also we'll talk a little bit about Advent right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here talking about some things that have been happening in the diocese recently. Last Sunday, we celebrated the Solemnity of Christ the King, which is also a day of prayer for persecuted Christians. Can you explain why those two fit together? Well, I think part of it is when we think of those who are persecuted for their faith, it's because of their loyalty to Christ the King, Hmm. that they're not willing to to deny their faith in order to save their their lives or, or to preserve their freedom. We see the exemplary witness of so many Christians in the Middle East, who chose to be faithful to the Lord, to the kingship of Christ, even though in doing so, they had to suffer and still suffer. Mm-hmm. You know, there are those who are imprisoned, not just in the Middle East, in some areas. Imagine being a Catholic in North Korea mm-hmm. or certain areas of China. I mean, so I think it's, it's kind of a natural linkage between the Solemnity of Christ the King and our prayer for persecuted Christians, because we're all called to be loyal subjects of Christ the King, to put God first in our life, to to give priority to the Lord Jesus as the King of the universe, yes, 
but also as the king in our lives, the one whom we seek to serve above all things. I also think on this day often of uh, St. Thomas More, who was a loyal servant of the king, and before he was beheaded, he said, I die as the king's good servant, but as God's servant first. Yeah. And that's a reminder for all of us. And when we think of our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ, they put Christ first, and they're willing also to die as God's servants first. What do you think the cause of religious persecution is? I think some of it is religious extremism. We hear about radical Islam or extremists in the Islamic religion who um, have a very distorted view of God. They uh, see Christians as infidels, such a perversion of religion to, to think that, that uh, God is happy with their execution hmm. of innocent human beings. I mean, that's very warped mentality. And that mentality we see in that extremism and in other religions, so not as a mainstream thing in those religions, but as really a, a perversion. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes it's it can be just can be terrible ignorance, could be hatred, various motivations. Well, the persecuted Christians awareness week continues until December 2nd. Uh, What are some ways that we can help persecuted Christians? Well, I think we have some good Catholic organizations that are doing a lot to help our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. Think of the Knights of Columbus. You know, Carl Anderson, the Supreme Knight, has been very vocal. He and the Knights of Columbus were very instrumental in, in U.S. Congress speaking of the persecution of Christians in Syria and Iraq as a genocide which was a really important designation. So I think we can support the, the good efforts of the Knights of Columbus and other Catholic organizations that are assisting. I think of Catholic Relief Services, the Catholic Near East Welfare Association, Aid to the Church in Need. There's various Catholic groups that are very active in serving the needs of, of, of those who are persecuted for the faith. And for a lot of us, it's hard for us to even imagine what some of these people are going through. Any suggestions on ways to educate ourselves about it? I think it is important to kind of follow the news on this. And you don't always find it in the secular news, yeah. um, but in good Catholic news media to kind of uh, follow what's happening, to be informed. Mm-hmm. There was a project that uh, I was really happy that Notre Dame was engaged in and they did research on this whole issue and it's called under caesar's sword yeah one could do a google search and that could come up and read the results of that research about how christians are dealing with persecution how they're coping with it i mean there's some coverage in the secular media but i think if you really want to get into it you're going to have to dive deeper into it. I also think you can get material from the Knights of Columbus mm-hmm. on this whole issue. And I think Under Caesar's Sword is also a documentary that they put out with that information available as, right. a, as a video. Also on Sunday, we will begin Advent. We'll be kicking off. What does the word Advent mean? Or where does that come from? It comes from, from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. Okay. So... Advent's a time of 
of in which we prepare for the birth of the Lord. And of course, we, we think of the two comings, Christ's coming into the world as a man, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the theme of the second coming of Christ, when the Lord returns again in his glory. So it's interesting that when we speak of the Adventus, the coming of the Lord, we're preparing for the commemoration of his first coming at Christmas. But notice the first part of Advent, the first few weeks really up until December 16th is really all about the second coming. You'll notice in the readings and the prayers Hmm. at mass, it's all about the second coming. But then beginning on December 17th, it really, the focus is on the first coming. Okay. And I love the liturgies between December 17th and December 25th, because in those nine days, the readings and the, the prayers and everything are so, real, so very beautiful. When we think about the coming of the Lord also, in Advent, there's a, a lot of reminder of the Old Testament promises of the coming of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. The Advent readings from the prophet Isaiah, so many of them are prophecies about the day when the Messiah will come. Yeah. So Isaiah is a great Advent prophet. And then there's the custom regarding the Old Testament promises and the waiting for the coming of the Messiah. There's that, uh, that wonderful custom of the Jesse tree. It's great to have that tradition, to, especially parents, to, to do this with your children. The Jesse tree consists of symbols of the Messiah coming from the line of Jesse. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesse was the father of King David. Also, I think it's significant to remember that Advent marks the beginning of the new liturgical year. The last Sunday of the liturgical year is Christ the King, what we celebrated this past Sunday. But with the first Sunday of Advent, we have the beginning of a new liturgical year. So the four weeks of, of Advent is really like naturally we're beginning the liturgical year with that expectation of the coming of the Lord. Hmm. So it's a beautiful season. Um, dates back, I don't know if you know much about the history of it. It really began no. in, the, in the church in France. I don't remember. I think it might have been third or fourth century and then spread to Rome. Huh. And then it became a universal celebration. But at the beginning, Advent would begin on the Feast of St. Martin, which is November 10th, I believe. And it would last until Christmas. Um, but then, not November 10th. I think it's November 11th. Yeah, November 11th. So Advent used to be longer, but then it quickly became just the four weeks. Okay. Yeah. What kind of tips do you have for somebody that might get a little too carried away with Christmas shopping and planning the Christmas celebrations and not really focusing on Advent as this time of spiritual preparation? You know, it's always tough in our culture to keep the spirit of Advent. It's almost like like Christmas is already here Uh many times. I mean, before Christmas actually arrives. Not only because of all the decorations, but you hear all the Christmas songs and Uh everything during Advent. When really the church wants to kind of preserve Advent as that time of quiet, joyful expectation. 
and then we celebrate the 12 days of Christmas. But in our culture, basically, everything ends when Christmas Day ends. So the Christmas tree comes down and all that. So we're kind of out of sync with the cultural, but it's hard because we can get kind of drawn into that. Yeah. And we lose the whole sense of Advent expectation. So I think we need to do that and then really celebrate Christmas for the 12 days, not just on Christmas Day, but celebrate actually more than 12 days all the way up to the baptism of the Lord. So how do we do that? I think we have to really make an effort, especially through our participation at the liturgy of Advent, to enter into the spirit of Advent. I highly recommend uh, really meditating on the readings of the daily readings of the Advent season. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great practice. And amid all of the busy preparations for Christmas, to just try to make a resolution to not get too caught up in those things. And it really takes a lot of effort. It's almost like you got to plan and schedule time for quiet and time for prayer. And maybe try not to get as caught up in the materialism as well. One of the things that I found a little helpful the last couple years was I tried to do my Christmas shopping before Advent begins Uh so that I don't get distracted or stressed out about trying to buy Christmas gifts the week or two before Christmas. And this year, I I have to say I'm pretty successful, (laughs) which is great because now I don't have to be like scrambling around at shopping malls you know that week before christmas when i want to enter into the mystery of christmas yeah where i want to have more time to pray not less time there are a couple other things that happen during advent that i find really helpful and there's two beautiful feasts that i think can be helpful and one is the immaculate conception Mm -hmm. december 8th and the other is the feast of our lady of guadalupe on december 12th both feasts of our lady well, Our Lady is the woman of Advent. You know, she's the one who waited in prayer and in faith for the birth of her son. She's a model for us of that spirit of Advent. So I think it's good to, to really just follow the liturgies of Advent, including those two feasts. That helps enter into the preparation for Christmas, too. Do you decorate for Christmas? I did last year because my family visited, uh-huh. uh, but I don't think I will this year because I'll be going home and I don't want to just decorate for myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of work. Last year, though, I did. I did decorate the house. I got a Christmas tree and everything because yeah. my family visited, but, but I won't be this year. When should we decorate for Christmas? Well, you know what I always enjoyed decorating was on December 8th to kind of make that, since it is a holy day and it's a day of celebration of Our Lady's Immaculate Conception, it seemed to me that's appropriate day to, to decorate. I guess technically it'd be good to do it on Christmas Eve, but that's I don't think that's practical. Okay. Um, I just like that as a day. I, I think I learned that years ago when I was in seminary, we would decorate the seminary on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Should we save something back for Christmas, a a certain decoration or a star on the tree or don't turn on the lights or something? Definitely don't put the baby Jesus in the crib until until maybe midnight, Christmas Eve. But it's not a bad idea to kind of be a little more sober in preparation, I mean, you Mm -hmm. know, in the way one decorates, et cetera. It's not a bad idea. 
but also the religious celebration. I really think you know, we should buy, if you're going to send Christmas cards, I have a ton of Christmas cards that I receive and send. Choose religious ones, mm -hmm. you know? Don't buy into the secular observance. I mean, what is Christmas all about? That's just one small recommendation. It's a joyful time. It's uh, It should be a time where we enjoy family, for example. And sometimes that can be taken away if we're if we're under a lot of stress. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Christmas decoration or an ornament or something like that? Definitely the Christmas crash. The, the nativity scene is always the center for me. Do you have a particular one that? Yeah, you like? that my mom made. Really? Yeah, my mother. It was when I was a seminarian. She made all of us kids a ceramic nativity set. Huh. And I would say she put a lot of time in it. It's beautiful. I, I, I set it up in the uh, lobby here at the Archbishop Knoll Center outside my office so that others can see it. That's definitely, for me, the most precious uh, Christmas uh, possession that I have. All right. Well... If you have questions for Bishop Rhodes, you can ask it by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll ask questions submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and we're answering questions that have been submitted by listeners. Our first question says, I appreciate the special masses that are being offered and organized for people who are celebrating significant anniversaries, such as 25, 50, or 60 years. I'm wondering if you would consider organizing similar mass opportunities for our marriages. For example, my husband and I had our marriage blessed and approved by the Catholic Church, but we did not have a wedding mass. If you were to offer a Mass for us and others with similar circumstances, it might be a significant and wonderful celebration for our marriages before a far-off 25th, 40th, or 50th anniversary celebration. I think it'd be great. I'd always be happy to uh, offer a Mass. I probably wouldn't be able to add special Masses onto my calendar because it's already full, but one of my regular daily Masses I'd be happy to offer for but I, you know what I think, too? This might be more appropriate on the parish level, mm -hmm. where a couple who, if they had their marriage blessed and approved by the church, but didn't have a wedding mass, I think they could easily ask their parish priest to, to offer a mass for them and perhaps for their family on a, on a special anniversary, mm -hmm. you know, since they didn't have it. I don't know why they wouldn't have had that when they actually had their marriage blessed because that can be done in the context of of, of mass as well mm -hmm. and as far as getting on your schedule for your daily mass intentions is there a, an official process for that or? someone could write and say bishop would you offer a mass for me or for this intention i'm i'm happy to do that okay yeah i mean as any priest would be okay yeah all right. Jean Ness from St. Therese, Fort Wayne, asked, what is your opinion of holding hands while praying the Our Father during Mass? Okay. Um, I don't really have a strong opinion one way or the other. It's not part of the rubrics that people hold hands during the Our Father. It's kind of become a custom where in some places people will hold hands during the Our Father, and I, I have no problem with that. But it, it can't be mandated because it's not in the liturgical norms. 
some people are very passionate on one side or the other. Yeah. And For me, it's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if people like to hold hands, I don't have a problem with it. You know? Sure. Yeah. Andrea from the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception asked, are there any rules about where people go to church? Does it have to be the closest parish? And if not, what are some factors we should consider when choosing where we become parishioners? Well, people are always free to go to whichever Catholic church they want to as far as attending mass. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be the closest parish. But I think maybe the Andrea might be talking about where they choose to become parishioners where they really want to register as yeah. a member of the parish and generally it's recommended that they would register at the parish in whose territory they live every parish has a territory so there are parish boundaries so the the normal thing to do would be to register in the parish where your home is located Okay. But there's not a hard and fast rule to that. I mean, there are some people who, for example, move, and they're so attached to the parish where they've been living that they don't want to change to join the parish where they're relocating to. Uh -huh. And that's okay. The church used to be a little more strict on that, but now the church is less strict. So someone doesn't have to register in the parish where they live, mm -hmm. although I'd still say that's the general recommendation. I know people, for example, in both Fort Wayne, South Bend, and especially where there are other parishes available. It's right. not less, it's a less likely option in some of the smaller towns and rural areas where there's only one parish nearby. Mm -hmm. But where there are a lot of parishes, like in Fort Wayne or South Bend, I notice that, uh, that people might keep their registration in the parish where they grew up even though they don't live there anymore, they're just so emotionally tied to it huh. that that's fine, Yeah, you know? But I think wherever one registers, one should be active, an active parishioner. Now, there are times where someone maybe, even though they belong and are registered in a particular parish, occasionally attend mass somewhere else. Maybe because the mass time somewhere else might be more convenient. And, uh, and there's certainly the liberty to do that. All right. Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And more of your questions are coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and we're answering questions that have been submitted by listeners. Our first question of this segment comes from St. Thomas the Apostle in Elkhart, said, In Matthew 18.20, Christ says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. I, like many others, pray alone. Can you explain the difference of praying alone compared to praying with many people? Thank you, and God bless you for all your good works, Bishop. Thanks, Therese. I would say both are very important, individual prayer and communal prayer. That quote about where two or three are gathered in his name, that Jesus is in their midst, that's, that shows the importance of communal prayer, that Jesus is with us where two or three gather in prayer. And the liturgy is communal prayer. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely important. It's necessary because we're not just individuals, we're members of of the body of Christ. So together we worship God and we pray together. At the same time, we are individuals 
that the personal prayer that we would have alone is, I mean, for me, it's, and I think for all of us, is essential as well. We can think of Jesus himself. He would go up on the mountain by himself yeah. to be with his father and to pray. So I would say to Therese, um, it's wonderful that you pray alone, but I'm sure also you'll pray with others. So there's, it's not an either or, it's a both and. All right. Our next question is, can I offer up the feeling of grief I experience in reparation for the souls of sinners? For example, I feel an enormous amount of sorrow after reading the news, especially the stories that involve abuse of children. Can I offer up my sorrow for what they experienced? Yes. As a matter of fact, we're, we're encouraged to offer up any sufferings that we have, offer them as a sacrifice to God. And we can have an intention. For example, as this person said, they would like that they experience grief and sorrow when they read the news. Well, that's kind of some inner sorrow, that, that inner suffering, that certainly they can offer that up for the souls of other people. Okay. And our last question from Marianne Soborowski from St. Jude's South Bend said, Thank you for being such a wonderful shepherd. You radiate Jesus. We pray for you and all our priests at Rosary before Mass every day, all year long. How old were you when you heard the call to dedicate your life to the priesthood? Bet your grandmas were super prayer warriors. P.S. You are so fun on the Wednesday and Saturday radio programs. Thanks, too, for sharing your time at Catholic Youth Summer Camp. The kids and staff love you. Thank you, Mary Ann. Uh, those are very kind words. And, and thank you for praying for me and, and all of our priests at Rosary every morning before Mass. You know, it's really your prayers and the prayers of the faithful that keep me and our priests going. So they're very efficacious. So thank you so much. I would say the first time I heard the call to the priesthood was when I was in seventh grade, and it was at the time of my confirmation. I'd say that was kind hmm. of the beginnings of the stirrings of the call in my heart. But I would say it really only became strong when I was a sophomore in college, and that was in an experience of prayer at the Grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes on the mountain above Mount St. Mary's University in Maryland. So those would be two key moments, seventh grade, confirmation, and sophomore in college. And yes, I would say especially my mother's mother was a super prayer warrior. Yeah. Very beautiful. She would pray her novenas and rosaries throughout the day, and uh, she was a beautiful woman of faith. Do you think there's a difference between uh, the era when you were growing up and today's young people as far as discernment and feeling that call? Does it seem to be later in the modern days that people receive that call or, or understand that? I'd say, generally speaking, we see, for example, young adults, you know, young people getting married much later than yeah. when I was in in school or back in the 70s or earlier. And we also saw in the past number of years a higher age for ordination and entrance into religious life. Mm -hmm. That definitely has been the trend. Though I would say in the last few years, we've had a number of young men who've entered the seminary right after high school. Yeah. So in some ways, I think that's a, a, a phenomenon 
a new phenomenon that's actually an old phenomenon because yeah. that's how it was back in the 50s and 60s. Do you think one is better than the other? Is it good to have more time for discernment or is it good to just get involved if you know you're supposed to be it's, doing this? I think it depends on the individual. Uh-huh. I mean, I think everyone's journey, vocation journey is unique. I think levels of maturity differ. So if a young man, for example, applies to the seminary after high school graduation, if I didn't feel they were mature enough or that they would do better if they went to regular college, I would ask them to do that and Mm -hmm. come back and apply. Others seem to be very mature and actually ready for seminary after high school. So I think it's, it's really you have to look at each person separately and individually. All right. Well, thank you again, Bishop, for meeting with us today. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. God bless you. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.